3: Is the rise of passive investing causing distortion in emerging markets? Top fund manager Terry Smith thinks so, and he joins me to explain why. Paul Lewis of Moneybox fame argues that the UK's national insurance system is in need of reform. And why new businesses are increasingly being started by older people. Would you be tempted to borrow against your pension savings to fund your dream second career? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. The rise of passive investing, particularly through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, has been a boon for the retail investor, who can now cheaply and easily access more unusual investments, such as those in emerging markets. Yet Terry Smith, the veteran investor and chief executive of Fundsmith, has noticed the popularity of this form of investing is having some unintended consequences. He joins me now on the line to explain. Welcome, Terry. Hello. Well, unusually for an active fund manager, you're actually quite a fan of passive investing, aren't you? Yes,
2: I am. Um, And I'm in particular a a fan of uh, of John Bogle, who's pretty much, I guess, the grandfather now of uh, of passive investing. It it seems to me to have some pretty natural advantages, which is to say, as you mentioned, uh, that uh, investors can get a widely diversified portfolio, often into assets they might find hard to access, and they can do so at low cost. and normally I would say, ah, but the, uh, the case for active management is there are certain things that you can't get with, uh, with passive investment. In particular, um, you can't select your, concentrate your investments and select them amongst, for example, good companies, mm. or companies that represent shares of companies that represent good value, or even preferably both things that are good quality and, and good value. Um, but the trouble is, looking at the results of the active fund management industry, it hasn't actually played, by and large, to those strengths. Most fund managers would appear to be unable to do that, and so they end up with uh, uh, portfolios which very often look quite like the index, quite diversified, with uh, lots of things in them, but with their active fund management fees and their propensity for larger dealing than the, the passive investment funds, uh, they automatically underperform the index, and the index funds and ETFs. And so faced with that, I think the majority of people are better off in an index fund than they are in an active fund.
3: Now, incredible um, that you should say that, somebody who runs an active fund. But in your column this week, you've written about the unintended consequences of the success of ETFs and investment. And this is an opportunity that you could perhaps capitalise on.
2: Yes. I mean, obviously, when I say that people should uh, mainly be passive investors and not invest in active funds, I don't mean mine, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad (laughs) uh, we got that clear. Well, naturally. I mean, just in case there was any doubt. Yes, there are, I think, some unintended consequences. Obviously, any form of index fund or ETF uh, weights the shares in its portfolio for whatever the weighting is for the index it's tracking, normally, the market capitalization or market value of the companies in the index. Uh, And so when money goes into these funds, and lots of money has been going into these Mm. it goes to the companies in the underlying index purely on the basis of their market value without any regard to whether or not they're cheap or expensive shares or whether they're good or bad companies. And that can produce some interesting distortions because um, an active manager who's trying to be uh, logical in terms of uh, owning good companies or buying things which are relatively cheap or or even both can find that actually all the money flow uh, is going to things that he wouldn't uh, or she wouldn't seek to own in their portfolio. So you can get some interesting distortions where things which you probably would shy away from on quality and value grounds are the best performers in markets which are dominated by these flows into passive funds.
3: And why is this particularly pertinent when it comes to emerging markets?
2: Well, um, the emerging markets have had a big inflow of funds in the last two or three years, as people have, have, have scented uh, a recovery after the, the big downturn that they had, uh, with the end of the of the, the so-called commodity super cycle and expectations of a rise in interest rates, and and most latterly the uh, the rise of President Trump have all uh, led people uh, led people originally to have a quite a big downturn in, in emerging markets, a uh, bear market in fact in them. As people have scented a turnaround for that, they've allotted more. And more money into emerging markets, but they have overwhelmingly taken the route of passive investments, mainly through ETFs. And in fact, if you look at the last <laughs> roughly 10 years and look at the flows into emerging markets in total, the the amount that's gone into um, uh, into passive funds, in particular ETFs, has been over that period something like 150 billion US dollars. And in fact, that's more than 100% of the flows into these markets, because something like 50 billion dollars has come out of active funds. So there's if if there are distortions caused by this uh, rise of passive investments is particularly pronounced in emerging markets uh, because not only do you have most of the money that's going in, uh, going in in passive funds, which is something you've got in main markets as well at the moment, but it's actually going in and money is being taken out of active funds. So the sort of uh, distortions that like I said about the uh, the market driving, in many cases, low quality companies with relatively poor value, but because they happen to be big to higher and higher valuations, I think is overwhelming the case in emerging markets. The the top 10 companies at the top of the, uh, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index or the Vanguard or other MSCI, ETFs which track it, none of them are really good companies. They've got very low returns on capital, uh, they've got very poor cash conversion, um, and they're not cheap. Um, all the things that an active manager would typically shy away from.
3: Well, thanks very much there to Terry Smith, Chief Executive of Fundsmith. You can read his column, Emerging Markets ETFs and the Jaws of Death, online now at ft.com money. Are you over 50? Got a great idea for a new business? Perhaps you fancy a change of career? Well, you could potentially be one of the growing army of so-called entrepreneurs who are starting their own businesses, often utilising their retirement funds to get started. Joining me to discuss is FT writer and our money mentor columnist, Lindsay Cook, who's written all about the topic this week. Welcome, Lindsay. Good morning. So economists have come up with this trend of olderpreneurs to describe the rise in those in their 50s and 60s who are starting their own businesses. Is this really entrepreneurialism or is this perhaps age discrimination at work? I think there is some entrepreneurialism.
0: I think there are some people who retire early and then get bored and want something to do. And there are some people who haven't retired but are bored in doing the same thing every year and again want something different their own little project but i think an awful lot is discrimination i met a headhunter the other day who places very senior people uh, in the city and in london and um, i was talking about people being discriminated against and she said well once they're 50 really they should make way for the younger generation because the younger generation haven't had time to build up money and you know Older people aren't so good on social media and other things. Oh,
3: goodness me. Well, I mean, somebody who is faced with the prospect of working until she's 70 before she can retire, that's a rather rather depressing view, but perhaps something that people are coming up against because if they want to apply for jobs in their 50s and even 60s, still perfectly able and capable, but employers are not even wanting them to interview. I think that's the case, and I can say
0: personally, since the age of 50, the only proper jobs I have got have been from people I've worked with before, so they knew that I could do the job. If I had been going in as a blank person, even disguising my age on my CV as well as I try to,
3: that um, I wouldn't have got beyond first first base. Another factor behind the rise in people starting their own businesses in later life is the impact of pensions freedom. So people can get their hands on considerable lump sums at a much earlier age, than they used to be able to yes the the main category for this are people who've got defined
0: benefit pensions and they can transfer them over into a su- small self-administered scheme and then borrow from that scheme for their new business now yes it's risky but it opens up tremendous um, opportunities at the moment um Many people have had their pots revalued, so something that was worth 80000 a year ago is now 180000 And you risk more by not doing it because once quantitative easing comes off and other things,
3: uh, the valuations won't be so high. So you can crystallise that valuation and, and and use this mechanism to borrow against it. Now, it sounds a bit risky. You met one entrepreneurial couple who borrowed against their pension in this way to start a new business. What did they tell you?
0: Well, they were in a business that was a sort of dying business in that they were in the pub trade right, and they had a successful pub, but they knew that their customers were as old as they were, and they wanted a they'd got probably fifteen twenty years of working ahead of them and so they they borrowed um they have a a, a system where um the manager who has organized this for them kicks the tires and gives them support in their business um They've already got twenty-five staff, um, and they're paying back the pension uh, at an interest rate with an interest rate of twelve percent. So that they are already planning their next business. Now they, she used to work in the city. They are absolutely aware of the risks. There are, I would say, greater risks with people who take out loans against their homes, especially those that roll up the interest, even though the interest rates are low at the moment. If they keep on rolling up and they live for a long time, it's a lot of their home's value that has gone. Other people use inheritances. Mm. And in fact, I've met more people who are anxious about, oh, I don't want to waste the money we've got from mum's home because she worked so hard to get it.
3: And there's more people anxious about that than they are about their own home or about their pensions. Well thanks very much there to Lindsay Cook, the FT's money mentor. You can read her cover feature um on this issue detailing all of the ways that olderpreneurs are getting into the market in the FT Money section. That's in the FT Weekend newspaper on sale from Saturday or online from Friday at Ft.com slash money. If there's one person who loves a bit of tax trivia, it's Paul Lewis. The FT Money columnist and BBC Moneybox presenter has got national insurance payments in his sights this week, highlighting several areas that could potentially be ripe for reform in coming years. Could this make the national insurance system fairer, and will it end up costing listeners more money? He joins me now on the line. Welcome, Paul. So, Paul, you describe yourself as a selfie, shorthand for self-employed, and this means that you pay rather less national insurance than I do as a
1: salaried wage slave, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does, because national insurance is normally 12% of earnings um, between £8,000 and £43,000. Pounds. But the self-employed pay only 9%. That's three percentage points less. That means the maximum difference is just over £1,000 pounds a year. And for someone on average pay, say, around £27,000, pounds, they say £568 pounds a year. That's nearly £11 pounds a week saved by being self-employed. Now,
3: you say in your column this week the historical reasons why there is this disparity, but the the sheer number of people now who are self-employed, working in the economy, around 15% of the workforce means that this is a little anonymously the system that may not be overlooked for much longer.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, there's more than 4 million self-employed people, as you say, 15% of the active workforce. And when it was introduced back in 1978, I remember it well, there was a justification for it because then you didn't get SERPs if you were self-employed. Now that's the state earnings related pension scheme. It's changed over the years but you didn't get that so you paid lower national insurance. Then it was about one and a half percent, about half the difference there is now. But now of course once you reach pension age from April last year everybody gets the same pension with 35 years contributions you get the same new state pension so there's no justification for self-employed people paying less than employed people and if if we all did, that would raise nearly a billion pounds a year. A billion pounds a year is certainly
3: a huge amount of money for the National Insurance Fund to potentially be reaping. But in your column this week, you note another anomaly of the national insurance system, notably that higher earners pay a much slimmer top rate of NI than they do... With income tax, could this also
1: change? Yes, it's what's called a regressive tax. The more your income is, or the more you earn, I should say, the lower the rate. Because when those 12% or 9% rates run out at £43,000 a year, the higher rate tax threshold for income tax the rate plummets down to 2%, and that's the same for employed and self-employed people. Now, it used to be that those people paid nothing. There was no national insurance. Then Gordon Brown introduced a 1% rate to help pay for the NHS. That was then doubled to 2% by um, George Osborne. So they do pay 2% above £43,000, and it's very odd that you should pay much less tax on higher earnings Normally, it's the other way around. The higher your income, the bigger the rate of tax. So that's a real anomaly.
3: And finally, one final area that could also be ripe for reform in future is the age at which we stop paying national insurance, particularly personal after we've just heard from Lindsay Cook telling us about the rise of, of older people in the workforce.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, older people who carry on working, and well over a million people work beyond state pension age. But do you know what? they don't pay national insurance on their earnings. National insurance stops in the week or the month or the year that you reach state pension age. And that really is an odd anomaly. And again, I reckon if they did all pay national insurance, that would bring in about a billion pounds to the exchequer or more. So there are a series of anomalies which cost the government money, which they may well look at. But do you know what, Claire, these would be huge political dynamite to try and change. But as you say, I'm a tax nerd. I love pointing out the anomalies and thank goodness I don't have to decide whether they carry on or end. Well,
3: we love reading about your Wittering's tax nerd. Thank you very much there to Paul Lewis. You can read his column now at ft.com slash money and comment online. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, then get in touch. Our email, money at ft.com, tweet us at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We will be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat,